to deliver the word. Yeah, come on. Do we have any Jesus lovers in the house today? Got a couple of you. Awesome. I'm in the right place. So glad you're here. Hey, if I haven't met you, my name's Taylor, and I am the lead pastor here, and I have the honor of sharing with you from God's Word this morning. And uh, if you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 21. I'll get there in just a minute. What we're going to do today, everybody, last Sunday, if you missed it, uh, we, were, we called Vision Sunday, where basically we went through kind of four key points of vision for this next year of strategic ministry that uh, God is calling us into. And one of those points was this idea of becoming a house of prayer. And so that's what I really want to nuance out for us here today. And here's my conviction as we approach Matthew chapter 21. What happens so often in modern Western church, and I understand this poll because I'm a pastor and I have done this, is we constantly are looking for the new and the better thing, right? The new and the better model. Uh, let's go after this type of ministry, this type of ministry, whatever it is. We go after the new and the better thing, the shinier toy. But here's the reality, guys. My conviction as we approach the Bible today is we don't need a new model. We need the old model, which is Jesus in Matthew 21. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And I've got five points for you today. Five point message for you avid note takers would encourage you to get your pens hot and ready, get your journal open. I don't think taking notes gets you into heaven, but I do think it helps. So I would encourage you to do that. Five points today about the house of prayer. The house of God is to be a, a house of prayer. The house of prayer is a house of power. It's a house of presence. It's a house of purity. And it's a house of praise. So except Excited to jump into this with you today, uh, and I am uh, full forewarning here, ripping off this whole outline from Dr. Jason Hubbard, which I rip everything off from him anyway, so uh, it's okay. He's going to be with us next Sunday, and would really encourage you to be here for that. That's going to be awesome. Here's the thing, guys. This is on fire on the inside of me today, okay? I'm going to forewarn you. I am not convinced about a lot of things, but Jesus' call on us as New Song Church into becoming a house of prayer is one of those things that I am absolutely sure of. And here's the thing. I remember I actually got saved uh, in a house of prayer, in a prayer meeting is where I met Jesus and my life was totally transformed and totally overhauled, met God in a personal way that totally changed me for the rest of my life. That really is the potential of the house of prayer. And I remember walking into that environment for the first time, because we talk about a lot about the house of prayer, the prayer meeting here at this church. And I remember when I first got kind of exposed to that language, I remember thinking, these people are insane, right? This is like monk-ish, weird Christian esotericism. Like, I don't understand how to relate with this. I don't know. I don't have a grid for any of this. And so what I want to do today is hopefully kind of contextualize this idea for you and put it in language that we can understand as Jesus directs us in this area, this direction of becoming a house of prayer. So let's go ahead and read our text today, and then we'll jump in, starting in verse 12 of Matthew 20. It says this, Jesus entered the temple, which was the place of worship and prayer, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus is going crazy right here, right? Like, I don't know about you, but that seems like a bad way to build a church service. Like, imagine me showing up with a whip and, like, whipping you and flipping over tables and stuff. Like, that's kind of probably a good strategy for not building your church. But nevertheless, this is what Jesus does. And it says in verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of what? A house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. 
and he healed them. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes, these are the religious people, when they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared for yourself Praise. So five points for you today. Before we get into that, uh, these moments are very powerful. They're awesome. They are culture shaping. And because of that, the spiritual warfare always increases. So I want to go to God one more time and pray. Would you pray with me here before we jump into this? Jesus, we thank you for your heart. And God, right now, I bind every single deceptive spirit, God, that would want to come and distract and steal the word that's about to be implanted into our hearts, God, as your people, as your house, as your sons and daughters. And God, I ask that this word would have its full effect on our community. Lord, that you would make us into becoming a house of prayer. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, your manifest presence. Would you come and drive this idea home for us in a powerful way today in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so point number one, house of prayer. Jesus, what you need to understand in Matthew chapter 21, he shows up to the house of prayer, right? This is where he goes. And here's the thing, what you need to understand, hell does not fear prayerless churches. Are you with me? Are you awake? Do you get it? Hell doesn't, hell is not afraid of churches that don't pray. You can also say that about the Christian. Hell does not fear prayerless Christians. Why? Because prayerless Christians and churches are powerless churches and Christians. And that's just the reality. But a praying church makes Satan very nervous because a praying church is a church of power. Prayerless churches are dead churches. Maybe you've been saved any length of time. You've probably been a part of one. I know I have. It sucks. People might make decisions for Jesus, but they don't actually become disciples of Jesus. There's no miracles. There's no Holy Spirit baptisms. There's no radical city transformation, culture transformation, and renewal. We just kind of show up and have a glorified TED Talk on the weekend and go on with our business, right? That's the reality of prayerless and spiritual dead churches. They're anemic, they're bland, they're vanilla, and they kind of suck to be a part of it. So here's the thing. Man, what I want to encourage you, don't settle for that type of Christianity, man. And as for us here at New Song, we are not going to settle for that type of Christianity. We are pressing in to see God glorified in the midst of our city and our generation and our region. And we really believe here at this church that as we pray and as we worship, the God of heaven moves and responds. And if you agree with that, you can give me a great big shout today. Okay, perfect. This is our conviction. And so Jesus, he shows up for the house of prayer. Why are praying churches different? It's because when we intercede, when we worship, when we pray, we are partnering with God in one of the primary ways that his purposes are actually accomplished in the earth right now through his praying and through his worshiping people. Prayer literally moves the hand of God over given situations, cities, regions, nations, and generations. This is what it does. And Jesus is zealous for his house of prayer. John chapter two, verse 17. uh, There's John, he's giving commentary on this moment when Jesus is cleansing the temple. And he says that Jesus' disciples are looking at him doing this. And it says, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That Jesus is zealous. He is jealous for his house of prayer, right? The temple, we talked about this last week. The temple is the place where God and where humanity, they overlap. And Jesus, what you gotta understand about this, he's jealous for relationship with you. What? 
Like, do you get that? Like he's, he is zealous for that place of overlap between him and you. He is zealous for relationship. He's jealous for you. Exodus chapter 34 verse 14 says this, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Let me explain it to you like this. So my family, we have dinner together pretty much every single night. I've got my chair. Marissa has her chair. Our kids have their spot. And uh, we eat together, and it's awesome. Check up on each other. How's your day? You know, what's going on in your world, your life? And we have some family meal time as best as we can with two crazy, uh, you know, tiny terrorist toddlers running around the house. And it's, it's awesome. And we have this time where we get together for a meal. And how, here's, here's the thing. Let me ask you this question. What would happen if I felt as you answer this question for me. What would happen if I walked into the room, I showed up for dinner, and there's another dude in my seat? What would happen? It'd be bad news bears in the Simpson household, right? Because, you know, like, imagine if Marissa was just like, hey, you know, hey, here's the deal. I know you're busy, you got a lot going on, and, and I've been hanging out with these other guys and just figured that, you know, like, we would share your role as husband and father with some other dudes. And so I'm just gonna, he's just gonna sit here for a little bit. I hope you're okay with that. What would happen, guys? I would go to jail, right? Like, literally, I don't know kung fu, but I know kung fu freaking punch your lights out and I will use it. Like, it would be a bad day and it would be the same for you. If you say, here's the point, guys. Why? Because I am jealous for my wife. I am jealous for my kids. And if there is anyone or anything that would ever threaten the integrity of my family, dad will absolutely bulldoze it and knock it out, right? That's, that's the point. I'm jealous for that place of relational connection. And, and if anyone is going to try to step into loving and serving and caring for my wife and my children in the unique way that I have been uh, entrusted with as husband, as father, then that's not gonna go well, right? And that's the reality. And here's what you need to hear. For some of you, this is gonna be the most meaningful part of this morning. What you need to understand is God is jealous for a relationship with you right? Like that. Like he actually really likes you. He really enjoys you. He wants to be close with you and be in relationship with you. That's kind of like the backbone of the gospel. You are estranged from the family of God. Jesus came to bring you back into the family of God, into the embrace of the father. This is what he wants to do in your life. The father's saying, listen, I, I want relationship with you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. Let's spend time together. And Jesus shows up in the house of prayer. And so let me, let me give some uh, language to this that hopefully is helpful. The, the temple was a place of worship and it was a place of prayer. Worship, what it is, worship is agreeing with who God is. Worship says, God, you're amazing. You're incredible. You are holy. I love you. You've done amazing things in my life and I can't help but respond with just dumping my guts before you and just loving on you and spending time with you. You're amazing. That's what worship is. Intercession is agreeing with what God wants to do. It says, intercession says this, God, I know you want to do this, whatever it is, because you say so in your word, right? Like you said that you wanna do this and so I am going to stand on that promise and bring it before you because you are not a man that you should lie and I will wrestle this thing to the ground until you do it right? That's what intercession is. It's bringing the heart of God, the will of God before God and asking him to do it until he does. And he shows up and he does amazing things. This is, this is what the intercession looks like. And there is a world of difference. Let me just say this between what we can call microwave prayer and true intercession, right? And the reality is most of the church only ever prays microwave prayer. You know what microwave prayer is? It's basically when you, you know, you show up to the microwave, you pop your food in 30 seconds, pull it out and you're good to go. That's basically, we do that in prayer all the time. It's microwave prayer. Hey God, you know, like bless my day, bless the food to the bodies. Okay, Jesus name, amen, deuce is, 
deuce, deuces, right? I'm gone. Or hey, God, I'm going to Costco. If I could get a good parking spot, that would be great. Jesus' name, amen. Don't act like you've never done that, <laughs> right? Or hey, you know, Jesus, I met this girl. She's hot. She's awesome. I would love a date, help, right? In Jesus' name, amen. That's, that's microwave prayer. It's totally different than intercession. Intercession is literally grabbing onto the heart and the will of God and laboring in prayer over it until it happens. God, this is what you've said, and I will hold you to your word because you said so, and you will do it. That's what intercession is. And Paul talks about this idea that it's, 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 it's laborious, right? It's hard. It's difficult. He, go, he covers that in 1 Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, and elsewhere. He talks about this idea of laboring fervently in prayer. And guys, can I just say, that is the kind of prayer that actually changes stuff. You need breakthrough in your marriage and your family? Start praying like that and watch what happens and how fast it happens. You wanna see breakthrough in your, your kid's school, in our city? Start praying like that with that kind of fire and watch how God responds. He does amazing things. It's, it's not, oh God, if it's your will, would you do this? Oh God, if it's your will, would you help me beat this sin thing? Amen. Like that's not, dude, that, that literally hits the ceiling and bounces back and hits you in the forehead. That's not gonna do anything. It's no, God, this is your heart. You want me to walk free from this addiction. Come and change my desires and my heart and I'm bringing myself broken before you. I can't do this, but you can. Come and change me. That is the kind of prayer that heaven and, and hell cannot actually get in the way of and keep God from answering. That's the point. And this is what Jesus is doing right now. Did you know that? You know, Jesus is praying for you right now. He Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25, look at this. It says this, the writer of Hebrews. Consequently, he meaning Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make what? Help me now intercession for them. What does that mean? That means that Jesus, guys, is not on a beach in the swim shorts, chilling back with the Ray-Bans and the coconut Mai Tai while, you know, Gabriel's like fanning him with the palm branch or whatever, right? Like he is literally actively engaged in the ministry of intercession right now. Do you get that? Like he's, he's before the Father weeping and mourning and crying out, oh God, would you fulfill your purposes in the midst of this generation? He's praying for you right now. Like you wanna have a better day? Recognize Jesus is praying for you. That's awesome. Your name is on his lips. He is interceding on your behalf right now. This is what he's doing. And here's the thing. When you get in relationship with somebody, you begin to care more about what they care about. Have you noticed that? Let me give you an example from my life. My wife, when... Uh, uh, We've been married a couple years at this point, and she decided to start a wedding photography business, which she is absolutely just bonkers good. She's crazy good. It's been awesome to see uh, just her growth there and what uh, God has even done through her business. And, uh, uh, you know, I remember when she first said that she wanted to open a wedding photography business, a photography business, I was, I, my, my initial thought was, that is like the most basic Christian white girl thing that you could possibly do, right? Like, like, like it is, but here's the thing. She was passionate about it and she started doing it. And so all of a sudden, because I love Marissa so, so much, the, the passion of her heart became something that I was interested in and I, I bought into and, and wanted to support and be a part of with her. And that's the reality. And here's the thing, when you get close to Jesus, he begins to entrust his heart to you you. You begin to care about the things that he cares about, right? This is why it's, it's always fascinating to me when you, when you meet Christians who have no missional drive or urgency whatsoever, right?
right? Jesus literally shed blood for lost people and we could care less about our families, friends, neighbors, coworkers that don't know Jesus and go to hell, right? Like we could just care less. And here's Jesus before the throne in heaven right now interceding on behalf of the lost in our city. This is what he's doing. And so closeness with him is going to result in a shared heart with him. One of the goals of discipleship is actually to become like Jesus. Did you know that? Have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? The Bible actually says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, which is just a fancy theological word, meaning that God's will is for you to become like Jesus. That's crazy. That'll freak you out. And the reality is Jesus ever lives to make intercession, which means that if you are gonna become like him, you're gonna what? You're gonna grow in the ministry of intercession. You're gonna pray with him. You're gonna sit with him and he's gonna share the burden of his heart with you and you're gonna step into that place of agreement and watch God's kingdom invade the earth. We are called to share into that ministry. And here's the thing about the house of prayer. The house of prayer, point number two, is also the house of the presence of Jesus. It's the house of the presence of God. Look at, uh, actually, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 16, Amazing verse, this isn't in your notes. God says this about his house of prayer. And now I have chosen and consecrated this house for my name to be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. It's like my eyes, my heart, all my affection is directed here in this direction of the house of prayer, this this place of overlap between me and my sons and daughters. I am jealous for that place. My heart and my eyes are always here. And Matthew 21, verse 13 is really a part of the fulfillment of God proving that he means what he says right here. In verse 13, Jesus said, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, right? And I say this all the time. We talk about this often from the pulpit. It's so much so, and I'm gonna continue to do it until you start throwing stuff at me because uh, this is so ingrained in us. Jesus says, my house is called a house of prayer, not of preaching and programs and music and whatever else we wanna make church about. He says, first and foremost, there's a place for all of those. They're important. Yes, they're good. We're gonna continue to do them, but my people are going to be categorized first and foremost as a people of prayer. It's intimacy. It's closeness with Jesus. And and this is fascinating about what he's saying here because he's like, listen, this is my house. Meaning if you wanna find me, says Jesus, if you wanna know where I am, if you wanna know my address, says Jesus, it's house of prayer right? That's where you can come and find me. That's where I will be. And guys, can I just say really quick that it is all about the presence of God. It's all about the presence of God. Without God's presence, again, I mentioned this a couple moments ago, but it's, it's true. Without God's presence, we're just a less cool version of a TED Talk. That's the reality, like, of what we do here. It's all about God's presence. For hundreds of years, Israel gathered around the presence of God, They were led by the pillar of fire, the cloud, right? They gathered, they encamped around the presence of God. And for the last couple hundred years, we as the Church of the West, we've gathered around a Sunday service. You can do a lot of Sunday service without the manifest presence of Jesus. And here's the thing, the presence of God, guys, makes a difference. When I encountered the presence of God and I realized that Jesus wasn't just the Jesus of my mom and dad and, and you know, like my church tradition, but he actually stepped into my life and I encountered him for who he really was, that is when everything completely changed. The presence of God is what makes the difference. And in Exodus chapter 33, Moses recognizes this. He's talking with God and he says, he has this moment of saying, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we're not gonna go. 
right? If you don't lead us, if you don't stay with us, families take notes, husbands, wives take notes, if God isn't leading, if he's not in the job transition, if he's not in the, uh, the moving to a different city or location or state or whatever, if he's not in this big major life decision, God, if your presence isn't in it, we're not gonna go, we're gonna stay right here because your presence is our goal, your presence is what makes the difference, and if we don't have that, what's gonna set us apart from the nations of the earth, says Moses. And the sad part about the church is oftentimes we become full of Christians who know nothing about the presence of God. We know nothing about God's presence. We walk around, and because of that, we walk around discouraged, beat up, burnt out, and does God really love me? Does he like me? Does he have time for me? And, and why does he seem so distant? And why does my life suck? And why is everything a disaster? Right? Why? The question is why? Guys, the answer is really simple. It's because we're not living into intimacy with Jesus. We're not living in that place of prayer and worship and scripture study and Christian community. We're not actually present in the house of prayer. That's the point. We're not living into the intimacy that Jesus actually shed blood for. Here's the thing, man. Let me just say this to you. You were made for the presence of God. Like, can I just say that? You were made for the presence of God. Genesis chapter one, when happens, God breathes life into Adam. He opens his eyes. What's the first thing that Adam saw? God's face. What does that say about your created value and God's intention in creating your life? You were made for face-to-face with Jesus, and Jesus made a way through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension for you to come back into that type of relationship. You were made for the presence of God. Do not let cold and dead and lifeless religion convince you of anything else. Jesus shed blood for you to walk in relationship with him right now. He loves you too much to wait till heaven. Right? He does. He loves you way too much for you to wait to heaven to get you and to be in relationship with you because he loves you so much. Prayer and worship, what it is, is the language of intimacy. It's the language of intimacy with God. And it's not for the spiritual elite. This is something, this is the birthright of the born again. It's the language of relationship with the God of the universe. So a house of prayer is gonna be a house of presence and also a house of purity. So Jesus starts whipping fools here. He purifies his house, which is crazy. Contextually, let me tell you what's, tell you what's going on here. What was happening in Matthew chapter one is you had these religious leaders who were basically exploiting God's people for a prophet. Uh, under the Old Covenant, Old Testament system of living and doing life as God's people, they would frequently be making these sacrifices to atone for their sin and to uh, help restore a measure of relationship with God. Jesus has been sacrificed, and that's why the writer of Hebrews says we don't need to do this anymore because he's the true Passover lamb that does away with sin. They didn't have that under the old covenant. And so what was happening is these priests, these people in the temple, they were actually marking up the sacrifices for profit. They were saying, hey, we've got people that need to make sacrifices to make God happy, let's exploit them and, uh, and make a profit out of it. This is so much more, guys, than, hey, you guys put a coffee shop in the back of your room, you're making the church a den of robbers. Don't you think for a second that that did not happen, okay? If you had that thought at all, you're what we like to call hyper-spiritual, which is basically just a Christian way of saying you have issues. So come up front afterwards and we would love to pray for you. But that's what they're doing. They're exploiting God's people for a profit and Jesus is not cool with that. And what's, the point is when Jesus shows up, in your life, in the church, right? When he shows up, what's in him and on him is so powerful, it shifts the atmosphere. Stuff changes. Holiness walks in the room because Jesus is the one who is 
holy. This is so important, right? For those of you that are here, you're either thinking about becoming a Christian uh, or you are a Christian because it's, it's, it's offensive, right? This idea of holiness is, and Jesus purifying the temple, it's so offensive to us. It's offensive to two different types of people. It's offensive to the religious person and the rebellious person. Let me talk to you about the religious person for a second because the religious person tends to say, listen, I am morally upright. My church attendance is good. I read my Bible every once in a while. I give money to church, support missionaries. I don't say bad words. The outside of my life looks pretty good. These are the self-help type Christians. We tend to view ourselves as good people getting better, but the Bible's gonna come around, the book of Romans in particular, and say, listen, we're not good people getting better. We're bad people actually getting worse. We need an alien righteousness that's not ours. We need God to put his holiness and his righteousness on us or else we're all screwed. That's the point of the book of Romans. Go read it. It's great. And this is what the, real, the, the religious person tends to do. And what happens is a subtle religious pride tends to creep in that convinces you because you are good and because you're doing good things, God owes you something. And so all of a sudden when life starts to go sideways, what do we do? We get mad at God because you aren't coming through like you're supposed to. It's a transactional relationship. God, I go to church every once in a while. That means that you're gonna do this and this and this and this. And when you don't do it, I get to get mad at you, right? But here's the thing. Let me just say to you, if this, if this is you, you're the religious person in the religious person category, God doesn't owe you anything, right? Absolutely nothing. He's your creator. You didn't create him. And just by very nature of him being your creator, right, that means that, that you owe him everything, right? And here's the point. If you got out of bed this morning and you got here, right, that should be enough to make you to become an incredibly thankful person because God was good enough and gracious enough to give you one more day. And the religious person in the temple, Jesus shows up and he starts flipping tables around, man. And he's like, listen, your religion sucks. Your righteousness sucks. It's repulsive to me. And the reason why, you want to know the reason why the modern mind doesn't get that? It's because we tend to view ourselves as morally compatible with God. We tend to view ourselves as pretty close morally to God. And so we don't understand this whole purity thing and this whole holiness thing, and we don't know how to register it. And the reason why we do that is because we have a pathetic and miserable, abhorrent, sickeningly low view of the holiness of Jesus. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he completely deconstructs that idea, and he says, listen, all right, for you religious people, let me come at you for a second. Uh, yeah, you've heard it said, don't murder. Have you ever been angry with somebody? Yes or no? Have you ever been angry with somebody? Married people, don't you lie, right? You were fighting on the way to church this morning, okay? Have you ever been married? Have you ever been, have you ever been angry with somebody? Jesus is like, yeah, that's the new murder. Sorry. Have you ever lusted after another human being? Have you ever looked at porn? Have you ever undressed a woman in your head or a dude in your head as they're walking by on the street? Have you ever reduced a human being to the level of an object? Have you ever lusted after something that you don't have? Yeah, that's the new adultery. Congratulations, right? That's what Jesus is is doing? What's he doing? He's crushing your religious pride and saying, listen, this isn't try harder. This is that you need my righteousness on you. I mean, think, think about this. Do you think Jesus died on the cross because you were pretty close to figuring it out? <laughs> no, that's not what happened. And in fact, it, it, this is where it's so offensive to the religious person because you need Jesus to put his holiness on you. It's like that quote from a couple weeks ago. Apart from Jesus, the most religiously devout and moral upright person is just as damnable as the worst sinner who's ever lived. And if that's hard for you to swallow, it's because you do not understand the holiness of God. That's why. 
the religious person needs to repent and say, Jesus, I, I, I'm jacked. I need you to forgive me of my religious pride and put your holiness on me. It looks like killing your ego and saying, Jesus, I need you to save me. I can't save myself. But this is also offensive to the rebellious person. The rebellious person is a person that tends to say, listen, God's good with me. God is love. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But God also doesn't really care how I live. I've had many people in my office over the years that want to follow Jesus. There's a spark of something awesome there, but they, they don't want to move out uh, you know, and stop sleeping with this person that they're not married with. And it's fascinating because the more that I sit and talk with people, I realize, man, a lot of people, our problem isn't intellectual in regard to making a decision for Jesus, but we got a problem with our belt, right? That's the reality. It's like, we don't have too many great uh, intellectual objections to Christianity anymore. It's just like, I I wanna sleep with whoever I want and do whatever I want whenever I want. That's the point. And here's the thing. What you gotta understand, if this is you, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter five, those who practice sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God, period, right? That's really intense. Go read that, 1 Corinthians 5. It'll still be there by the time you open up your Bible. It won't go away. And that word for sexual immorality is the word pornea, and it's a drunk, junk drawer term referring to people who are living and sleeping together before they're married. Holiness, and here's the thing. Holiness is such an unsexy idea. Can we just recognize that, right? Because when we start talking about holiness, it comes with all of these negative connotations of traditionalism and anti-fun, in anti-hedonism, and here's what you need to realize. God is not the cosmic killjoy of the entire universe, right? Any boundaries that God puts in place around your behavior and your lifestyle, it's for your good because he loves you. Think about it like this. Who made sex? God, right? Who made pleasure and beauty and joy? God, right? So he's gonna, he's gonna know how to interact with these things and if they all came from him, that means that pleasures are meant to be pointers and what we do is we make them ultimate and we say, this is my God, I bow down and worship before this and you miss out on the whole point that it's not about the pleasure, it's about the God behind the, the pleasure that you're looking for, right? It's the God who made these realities. He's drawing, trying to draw you to himself and this is the reality. God puts boundaries because he loves you and he cares for you. It's like this. My kids, uh, you know, we read this, Marissa and I read this parenting book a while ago uh, called Raising Passionate Jesus Followers by the Comers. Check it out, great resource. And they talk about this idea of discipline, that you have to discipline your kids because if you don't, what's gonna happen is their behavior just projected out 20 years, right? So like you got a three-year-old or four-year-old running around your house, they're going crazy and punching you in the head and doing all this sort of stuff. Project that out 20 years, it doesn't look good, right? And so for example, like Asher, he was doing this thing for a little bit where like we're out in public and all of a sudden we just turn around and his pants are around his ankles and he's just like, peeing everywhere, like just going crazy. And so I had to discipline that, right? Because I'm projecting that out 20 years and I'm imagining myself dropping him off at the college dorm and me getting a call from the police department. Hey, your your kid was, you know, taking a leak on the side of the road and we had to arrest him, right? That's the point. It's because I love my children that I put these boundaries around their behavior and their actions. And so in regard to sex before marriage, for those of you that find the sex ethic of the Bible uh, offensive, look at this. Statistically and sociologically from the non-Christians research, all right? Couples that live together and sleep together before marriage, look at this. They have higher uh, rates of divorce. They have higher rates of adultery, of marital infidelity. They have higher rates of abuse, whether that be physical, uh, emotional, or verbal abuse. They have higher rates of marital dissatisfaction. 
figure that out. And also, in contrast to the people that have uh, decided to uh, live in purity until their marriage, don't live together, sleep together until they're married, they have the highest levels of marriage satisfaction. They have the best sex lives. They have the lowest levels of divorce, the lowest cases of domestic violence. All of those things are now producing the best environment for children to be raised in, right? It's, it's amazing, right? And here's the point. God's way is the best way. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter three. He says, let God be true and every man a liar. What does that mean? You're wrong. <laughs> yeah, woo <laughs> Well, I hope you come back next week. You're dead wrong, right? Like that's the reality. Like you're, you're wrong. God is true. And, and, and we, we tend to end up living in a way that and ultimately does harm to us and to those around us. And the point is when you, you reap what you sow, here's a biblical principle. And so if you sow a life that is not, uh, does not live in a, such a way that Jesus has established and intended your life to be, you are going to reap a harvest that is not, it doesn't look like the blessing and the best of God. That's the point. Without holiness, the Bible says, no one will see the Lord. This is why Jesus cleansing the temple is so offensive. And let me be very clear with you. Let me just say this in regard to that 1 Corinthians 5 uh, verse that I mentioned. If you are here this morning and you are living in habitual and unrepentant sin, meaning you know, you're living in a way that is contrary to God's standard of morality and living, and you're unrepentant and you're not convicted about it, what I wanna say to you, you are not born again. You're not. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 5 says. And you need to actually let the weight of that hit you and become a repentant person that says, Jesus, I need you to redeem me. I need you to forgive me. And you're the only one ultimately that can do that. And of course, we're gonna give you an opportunity to do that because he is so anxious to do that in the context of your life. When you become a Christian, here's why I can say that. Oh, because the Bible says it, number one. Number two, when you become a Christian, part of the whole idea is your, your desires change. Your affections change. God actually overhauls what you want to do. This is why sin doesn't feel good for you anymore, right? The stuff that you used to do before Jesus, now you hate it. Guys, I used to smoke a lot of weed, okay? And when I got, hard to believe, I know. I know, it's hard to believe. I used to smoke a lot of pot. And what happened when I met Jesus... I look back on that season of my life and I'm like, what an idiot. Like, what was I doing? Just getting high and playing video games? Like, what a loser. I remember, you know, I met Jesus and my friends and I, we partied all the time. It was always about the next thing, the next party, party hopping and next concert, right? We're just living wild and going nuts and being stupid teenage kids. And, and when I met Jesus and I encountered the presence of God, I remember I had this total overhaul of mind and heart and I looked at us and how we were living our lives. I'm like, what a bunch of idiots. Like, what are we doing? We're selling out for the lesser place pleasure of actually knowing and being in relationship with the God of the universe. And this is what you have to understand, man. We are not good people getting better. We're bad people getting worse. Christianity is not about behavior modification. No amount of behavior modification and religion, right? Because if you're rebellious, I don't want you to jump in the other ditch of religion and think that now you have to try hard. You need Jesus to change your desires and your affections and what you want to do. And this is what the gospel does. It doesn't come and put and say, you know, you need behavior modification. No, you need nature regeneration. You need a new heart. And this is what God does when he fills you with his spirit. You become a different type of person. The what you want to do changes because you've met Jesus. 
This is what happens. And so uh, we're gonna be a house of purity as we become a house of prayer because Jesus shows up and he convicts us and he leads us into his truth and he, he shows us, man, you're comping out for a lesser pleasure here. You're made from my presence. This is taking you away from my presence. And the house of prayer is also gonna be a house of power. Look at verse 14 with me. Jesus says this. It says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them, right? Like the house of prayer is a house of power. Miracles are happening, happening because Jesus is in the room. There's this amazing moment in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter one. There's a woman, her name is Hannah, and she is barren. She can't have kids and she's desperate for a child. And so she comes to the temple, the place of worship and prayer, and she's just dumping her guts before God. And she's, she's, she's just crying out, Jesus, you gotta do something. God, help me, give me a baby. I want a baby, you know, do this, God, please. And, and literally the religious leaders of her day, one of them in particular, his name was Elijah, Eli, he looked at her and he thought that she was drunk. What's so sad about that is the spirit of prayer was such a foreign thing to the people of Israel in that day, the priest even thought that she was drunk, right? And so he goes up to her and he's like, hey, what are you doing? Get out of here, you're crazy. And then she's like, no, I'm not drunk. I'm crying out, I'm bearing my heart before the Lord. This is my burden. I want God to do this so desperately. And he's like, okay, well, let it be done to you as you've asked. She goes on her way, she gets pregnant. Her son, guys, God used that dude named Samuel to restore the priesthood in a single generation, restore the ministry of the prophet in a single generation. Samuel is the one that ultimately commissioned David as king of Israel. And of course, from David's line came the Messiah. You can bring all of these realities back to a barren woman dumping her guts before the Lord. And God shifted an entire generation and nation, right? That's what the house of prayer is, guys. It's a house of power because we're partnering with the heart of God and we're saying, Jesus, this is what you wanna do, do it. And he ultimately does. Moses, he saved a nation through intercession. Daniel, he, he, God used him in his prayers to deliver the nation of Israel from exile. Uh, Esther ended a death decree through intercession. The whole image of the cross is Jesus interceding on behalf of humanity, literally pulling humanity and God together on the cross, right? This is what it means. It's a house of of power. Are you with me? Are you getting that? That's so important, dude. Okay, here's the thing. That, that's the kind of prayer that changes stuff, right? There's a, a ministry in Kansas City called the International House of Prayer. They've had a meeting, a prayer meeting going for basically 20 years now. It's awesome. We've got a lot to learn from them. When they first started, they had this one prayer meeting where this little old lady gets up and uh, she just starts praying, God, would you cause like the biggest, you know, sex trafficking bust in our city's history to happen tonight? Like this big, bold, crazy prayer. Does God wanna do that? Yes or no? Does he wanna do it, right? And so here's this little old lady, like this is your heart, this is what you wanna do, God of justice, and everybody's like, yeah, Jesus, do it. And they're all in agreement. Sure enough, that night, a random traffic stop happened. This dude gets busted. He had thousands of CDs in his back seat and literally it led to the biggest sex ring bust in Kansas City, City's history, right? Literally right there. And you could bring it all back to a prayer meeting, guys. What's the point? The house of prayer is a house of power. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, the works that I do, even greater works than you will do because I go to the Father. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you that the Father would be glorified. The greater works are in context of the asking. What we do when we hear those verses, what do we do? We start to make excuses of why Jesus doesn't actually mean what he's saying. 
right? Oh, here's why Jesus doesn't actually mean what he's saying right here, right? And, and, the, and it's crazy, right? Like, you need to feel the weight of that. Jesus is like, listen, I did some awesome stuff. Guys, this is the starting gate. This isn't the end, end zone here. Like, this is the starting gate. You're gonna do great works just like this. And it's in the context of asking, says Jesus. We've seen this happen as a church, man. We've seen people encounter God's presence in such a way where they're totally transformed. We've got uh, a member at our church. Her name is Hannah. Her and her husband and family are just beloved to this church. We love them so much. She was at a prayer meeting recently and a number of years ago in October, she lost her baby. And uh, just, she hates October every year because of it and just experiences this pain like it's brand new and just happened every year. Shows up to a prayer meeting. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up and gives her a vision where she sees Jesus holding her baby. Immediate emotional breakthrough and healing because she recognized Jesus has my baby. I don't have to hate this time of year anymore because of what Jesus has done. That's the potential of the house of prayer. We had a, uh, this other prayer meeting a couple years ago where uh, Adele, she's actually on church staff. I love this because this is, this is just nuts. Um, she broke her arm and she shows up to the prayer meeting and we're like, hey, let's pray for you. So we pray for her. She was in pain. She couldn't move or bend her arm. Uh, it was broken and the doctor said that she needed reconstructive surgery. So we prayed for her, just decided to believe God for a miracle. Sure enough, immediately as we're praying, all of the pain leaves her arm. She can throw her arm all over the place and bend it with no pain. She goes back to the doctor. The doctor looks at her, checks her out and says, listen, I don't only not wanna do surgery on you. I never wanna see you again. You're totally fine. Guys, can we wake up? Can we wake up and recognize that the house of prayer is a house of power? These aren't just moments where Jesus will release over us as a church and say, yeah, get excited and clap for a second and then move on. No, but like, let's have faith for God to continue to do stuff like this, right? And this is, this is what Jesus will do. We're seeing this in the book of Acts where signs and wonders and miracles happen to confirm the gospel, to confirm that Jesus is the king of the universe, that he's very much alive and active in the world, that he's present and he's doing stuff. God will release miracles to say, hey, listen, like, I'm legit, hello, I'm right in front of of you, right? Let me heal you. Let me heal your marriage. Let me heal your family. Let me heal that emotional trauma and wounding that you carry. Let me heal you physically so you can have faith that I can do it for your city. So that you can have faith that I can use you to be an agent of healing and, re- and, and restoration and, 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 you know, a, 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 a conduit for my glory to actually enter the world. Let me show you how much I care for you and love you. And then I'm gonna get you positioned to actually do that in the context of the world around you. Verse 15, this, it all starts in the house of prayer. It says that Jesus did wonderful things, right? But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, you know, Jesus wants to do wonderful things in your life. He came to build you up, not to beat you up. He came to save you, not condemn you. He came to get you, not to reject you. He came to cleanse you not to rub your face and how you've messed up and screwed up your life and blown everything up. He came to give you a hope for your future and forgiveness for your past. He came to give you a new identity and not leave you stuck in your old one. This is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to do wonderful things in your life if you let him. Last, the house of prayer is gonna be a house of praise. Look at verse 15 through 16. It says this. 
that you got the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They're worshiping Jesus. And the religious leaders, they were mad. And they said, hey, Jesus, don't you hear what these kids are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared for yourself praise. Just have this on my heart right now. Parents, don't ever um, underestimate the potential of your children spiritually. The religious elite of Jesus' day missed it, but the kids got it. They saw, they understood, and they worshiped. We've got a lot to learn from our kids. Don't underestimate them. They need to teach us. And in fact, Jesus says, we gotta convert and become like the children. But what happens is we convert children to become like us. And so we're all screwed up. And that's a problem. And so this, the, the house of prayer is gonna be a house of praise. This is what happens, guys, when, church, when the church of Jesus takes her place is becoming a house of prayer. God shows up with his manifest presence and power and people get healed and saved and set free. They get their lives changed. Worship is easy when that happens, right? Because this is why we worship on Sunday, because he's awesome, because he's changed our lives. And here's the thing that's just so devastating, man. We are not trying to entertain you. Like, can I just say that really quick? The worship team, when we worship here on Sundays, we're gonna worship here again in a second. We're not trying to entertain you. We are literally trying to bring you into the presence of God. And here's the reality. Some of you just stand there every single Sunday like a zombie with your hands in your pants, just like, you know, like drooling out of your mouth. Like you're thinking about whatever you're thinking about and you know, this deadline hanging over your head and what you gotta do after church. You don't actually just take a second and tell all that stuff to shut up and just engage with the presence of God. We're not trying to entertain you. We're trying to bring you into the presence. And here's the crazy thing. You can go to a cracking game right now and everybody is flipping out, jumping around, spilling beer everywhere. You know, like just being like crazy people. You go to church and we can't get a little bit excited about what Jesus is done to save you and restore you and forgive you and give you eternal life, right? Like he defeated death for you, bro. You get eternity because you get God. And we can't seem to get a little bit excited about that. Well, I don't feel like it, bro. <laughs> Do you think Jesus felt like going to the cross, right? You think Jesus woke up the day he was gonna be crucified? Like, man, I am just so pumped about this. It's gonna be easy. Like, just gonna go to the cross and get crucified and die and Oh, I'm pumped about it. No, he wasn't pumped about it. In fact, in the garden, he was sweating blood, right? He literally took the wrath of God on your behalf and he knew that was gonna happen, that was gonna go down, but he did it. Why? Because he so loved you, right? And we can't seem to get a little bit excited. Dude, if, if he can do that for you, you can get a little bit excited on Sunday mornings and tell your feelings and what you don't wanna do to shut up and lift your hands and exalt the God of the universe who shed blood for you, who loves you, who's in the room, who's changed your life and actively involved, amen? amen. All right, good, glad we're on the same page. <laughs> Here's the reality. Worship, guys, it's, 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 it's natural. It's the reflex of the Christian. What happens when you encounter God, worship is the byproduct. You see this all throughout the Bible. Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah sees the glory of God, falls on his face, worships, can't help it. Daniel, Daniel 10, encounters the glory of God, falls on his face, worships, he can't help it. John in Revelation chapter one encounters the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. He falls on his face and he worships. He cannot help it. Worship is the natural expression of a people who live in intimacy with God. Now, let me say this and just drive a stake straight through your gut if I haven't done that yet. <clears throat> Here's the thing. If you have no joy and excitement or passion in regard to worship, you do not know him. 
but you're definitely not close to him. And here's the thing, again, I'm not trying to heap like religious, go try harder and do better on you because that's not gonna work. What Jesus is saying, if this is you, come a little closer. You guys remember that moment in the Matrix when Neo's like, does that? Like that's what I just pictured Jesus doing to some of you. He's just like, come here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, like, let me show you who I am. Let me show you how much I love you, how good I am. Come a little bit closer. Worship is the natural response to a people who live in closeness to God. Here's the thing, guys. God keeps getting so much better for me every single day and year of my life. In the midst of every trial and every difficulty and every, every hardship in my life, Jesus keeps getting better because I continue to see him show up and prove, listen, man, I'm, I'm present. I'm involved in your life. I love you. I'm going to come through. Trust me and rejoice in the day of your healing and your breakthrough right now because it will come. He keeps on getting better better. Worship is a natural expression for those that uh, know him and live close in relationship to him. So there we go. House of prayer. That's why we're going in that direction. Now, let me close with this thought, and then I'm going to give you some application really fast. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. Communion team, go ahead and come on up. We're taking communion together here today. I'm going to have to narrate this for you uh, for the sake of time. I'll give you the scripture references, and you can read them later. I found this really interesting contrast in the Bible the last couple months, and I just cannot get away from it. Uh, on one hand, you have David, king of Israel. God says, David is a man after my own heart. And uh, David was this awesome dude, and uh, he had a lot of success. He honored God at every turn, messed up, did some stupid stuff, but he was repentant, and he gave his life to the Lord wholeheartedly and never let the dumb things that he did convince him that God still couldn't save him in the midst of it. Amazing guy. And there's this moment in David's life where he, in First Chronicles chapter 17, <clears throat> David says in verse one, uh, listen, man, I, I've got, my house is all figured out. I live in this paneled house. It's awesome. And God is living in a tent, and I'm not okay with that, is essentially what David says. By every standard and metric of modern success, David checked every box, right? He's the king, he's powerful, he's got lots of money, he's got lots of kids, he gets to do pretty much whatever he wants, and he looks at that and he says, listen, this isn't enough. Like, there's a longing in my heart to actually build a dwelling place for God on the earth, and, and I have to do something about that. And so he's got this friend named Nathan, and uh, Nathan's like, that's awesome, go do that. Nathan actually encounters God, and, and God speaks to Nathan, and he's like, hey, go tell David, like, that, I, I, I'm gonna build him a house. Right, God responds to David with like, I'm gonna bless your kids. I'm, I'm gonna establish your kingdom forever from you. Ultimately, the Messiah is gonna come. Like God just dumps favor on this guy. And he's like, David, you, you would build me a house? You would sacrifice for me? Like you would, you would actually do this. And God just like dumps out favor on this guy's life. It's crazy, right? And he did, and you study the life of David and you see how God responded to him. It's just incredible. Now contrast that to a moment in Haggai chapter one. Essentially what happened, uh, Solomon, David's son, built the temple. The people of Israel sinned against God, really got really bad for a second. They got invaded and they went into exile. The temple was totally destroyed. Very low moment in the nation of Israel's history. And what happened was ultimately God raised up these uh, prophetic voices to say, hey, you know what? Uh, God's gonna bring deliverance. Ultimately, God did. They went back to Jerusalem and they started rebuilding the temple. But it says in verse two of Haggai chapter one, God basically speaks to them because they got distracted. They stopped working on the house of prayer. And he says, hey, 
guys are saying that it's not time to build the house of God while you're busy doing your own stuff, right? This is what he said. Can we get those verses up in Haggai chapter one if we have them? Let's just read this. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Next verse. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. We call that tax season, right? But that's the reality is you can laugh at that, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's Haggai's like, listen, man, you're, you're trying hard. You're trying really hard. You're doing all this stuff, but you keep harvesting little. You're not fruitful. Why? Because the people of God were saying, we can do this whole thing in our own strength. They were relying on themselves. That's what the house of prayer is, guys. It's us saying, listen, God, you have a vision for our church and for our city and for our nation, and we're gonna press in here. We're gonna build this house of prayer. We're gonna stand our watch, and you are gonna hear from heaven. You're gonna answer from on high. You're gonna pour out your spirit, and an entire generation and individual lives are going to be changed and cities are gonna be awakened and the church is gonna be revived and it's all gonna start because a few people show up to the prayer meeting. David says, listen, I will not sacrifice unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. The question for you, okay? Question for you, question for me, question for us. What category are you gonna exist in? Are you gonna be in the David category whose life literally echoes throughout the hall of eternity? he built, made preparation for the house of prayer? Or are you going to be in the Haggai category and stay busy with your own life, your own, you know, retirement portfolio, business empire, whatever, there's a place for all of that. But if it's at the expense of Jesus calling us into the prayer room, we are missing it on an epic level. So what category? And the reality is, here's the reality. I have been in, in prayer ministry for over a decade. decade. And many of us, what's gonna happen is you slept through this whole thing and you're gonna continue to choose to just stay in lukewarm Christianity. And I'm still gonna preach my guts out at you every week to try to get you to wake up and come in closer relationship with the God of the universe who loves you. But that's just the reality is many of us, we're gonna keep going. We're gonna hit the snooze button, not gonna do anything about this because church attendance on Sunday mornings is just for a checkbox to make me feel like a better Jesus follower. You got no love, no zeal for God. But some of you, what I know is God is stirring your spirit right now because that's exactly what happened happened in Haggai chapter one, verse 14, that God stirred up the spirit of the remnant of people, of the people to come and work on the house of the Lord. And that's happening for some of you. And so let me give you some application. Can I give you something to do here? Because I know you pragmatists, you like when I do that. Show up to the prayer meeting, right? We've got our 24 hour prayer meeting happening this Friday to Saturday. I'm gonna be here from six to 9 p.m. Come and join me. We're gonna do all the hard work from the stage. Bring your Bible and a journal. You just come sit and encounter Jesus and figure out what this whole prayer thing is all about firsthand. We're not gonna put a tambourine in your hand, shave your head and make you do a fire dance as we sprinkle holy water on you. I will do all the fire dancing from the stage, okay? So you don't have to worry about any of that. Just come, we would love to have you for that every single week in addition to that. On Thursdays from 7 to 8 p.m. is kind of our all-church prayer gathering. What I would love to see is for that prayer meeting to be as attended as our Sunday morning gatherings. Why? Because Jesus is worthy. Right? Here's the thing, guys. Let me just say this. Uh, all Everybody that's around the throne of God right now, they're not bored. Right? Like... 
they're not, they're having a really good day. And so what happens when we show up to the prayer meeting is we step in to that eternal moment in the presence of God and we begin to meet with Jesus and see him do amazing things. So why don't you stand with me? I'm gonna pray for us here. We're gonna take communion together this morning. And I love communion because it's a, it's, it's a moment of... oneness with Jesus. It's a moment of us coming in contact with the presence of God in a unique way. And so maybe you're here and you're in one of those two categories of rebellion or religion. You're trying hard to earn favor with God and Jesus is like, listen, man, this isn't about you trying hard. This is about what I've done. Communion is a moment for you to recognize, man, I can't do this whole thing and I'm trying to do it on my own strength. And he's surrendering back to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're the rebellious person. You got sin in your life. You recognize that Jesus is passionate about holiness, holiness in your life. And uh, you're getting convicted about some area of compromise and sin in your life. And I want to encourage you, let the Holy Spirit do his full work in your heart. Receive the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus that he accomplished for you on the cross as we celebrate communion here together today. And I think this is just a perfect Sunday to take communion temple is the illustration where God and humanity overlap. And this is what we celebrate, that Jesus shed his blood for us to come in contact with him and live in relationship with him. So let me pray for us to that end, and then we're going to serve you communion this morning. Jesus, we love you. God, I ask, God, I ask that you would make us a house of prayer. Lord, I know this is your heart. God, I pray you tell us in the Psalms that unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. Lord, I thank you for every single person whose spirit you are stirring up to come and pray, to come and attend our weekly prayer gathering, to come to our weekly watch, to come and uh, uh, maybe even uh, reach out to our staff and talk about how can I start another hour prayer time here at our church. Lord, I thank you for every single person that you are stirring up in this room. And God, I believe that you are building us into becoming a house of prayer. And we are going to see your glory invade the earth as we do it. So we thank you for it in advance. God, we just thank you for the communion table. Thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for communion with you. Holy Spirit, I pray for those of us that need to do work with God, that you would come and convict us, encourage us, and strengthen us. Jesus, the work of the cross is a complete work. It's a finished work. And I pray that this would not just be a moment of religious symbolism, but of life transformation as we reflect on and we remember what you've done. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. All right, everybody, I'm gonna invite you. If you are a Christian, you love Jesus, committed to uh, following Jesus, I invite you to go ahead and exit to your left, come up, grab your emblems, and return to your seat. Go ahead and start making your way forward now. If you are not a Christian, we would love to pray for you. You can come and meet Pastor Ty over here off to my right and your left. We'll pray for you and get you introduced to Jesus and serve you your first communion here today. She would love to do, and the worship team is going to lead us in the final song.